TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Welcome to Nothing Impossible on St. Louis's News Radio, KMOX. Michael and Travis with you, and we're doing the show this week from Venture Cafe. We're on the floor of the 4240 building, first floor. We're in the middle of the next event, which this week is featuring Express Scripts. Yeah, this is something that Venture Cafe does probably once a month with various corporate partners, and I, I have to say that Express Scripts has been with Venture Cafe probably since the beginning. This might be the third or fourth next event that they've done, uh, and now we get to chat with uh, Bill Patterson, who is the uh, Senior Director of Benefits and Solutions with Express Scripts. And Bill, you got to sit in and listen to some startups pitch today, right? I did, absolutely. So at Express Scripts, we welcome the startup community. We consider ourselves open innovators, which means we we know that we don't have all the answers to solving healthcare's problems. We're very open to looking to see who's doing innovative things in the marketplace and seeing that if that aligns well with our business model and we will ultimately bring those capabilities to our clients and to our patients. Yeah, it used to be, I think, that for big companies, new ideas, it was the responsibility of R&D to come up with everything. And now companies are looking at small startups, they're launching investment arms, even bringing some of those solutions then in-house. What did you see here at the pitch event today? Anything that stood out to you that made you go, now this is really cool, this could change healthcare? Yeah, I would say most startups today are looking to see how digital solutions can disrupt the care model. Digital solutions focused on diabetes, all the way through digital to digital solutions that are helping caregivers take care of patients that are living with dementia and Alzheimer's, right? From our perspective, as it relates to the startups, right, we know that we cannot innovate as quickly as somebody with new technology and new platforms. We have very core capabilities that have obviously delivered tremendous value to the marketplace, but when it comes to very niche pathways, when it, when you think about diabetes, when you think about oncology, when you think about um, behavioral health, we look to the startup community to really help us deliver innovative and robust solutions. And so you saw a few startups here tonight. Uh, there's a lot of buzz and activity going on with Express Scripts. Why, other than uh, just identifying startups, why else is it a benefit for Express Scripts to participate in these sorts of activities? Is it good for your existing employees to come and get connected? So I, I think first off, it's good for Express Scripts because we get to go outside of our four walls and really see what's going on in the marketplace, right? We know we don't have all the answers. Secondly, when you come down to Cortex, you're exposed to a ton of talent. And we are all about talent infusion uh, within the company. Uh, Talent is the lifeblood of any creative organization. And then third, if you just look at the innovative spirit that's going on within Cortex and here in St. Louis, it's good to get plugged into these type of events. Uh, Once again, I'll go back to what I said earlier, which is we don't have all the answers. So if we can find innovative companies that are doing things that um, are disrupting healthcare and doing it quickly, we're always willing to partner. And these events are a good opportunity for 
just a regular person to come and interact with these huge companies that we have based in St. Louis, including Express Scripts, because you can't exactly just walk onto the campus and say, show me what you're up to these days. So these events are a really cool way, whether it's, you know, Bayer was here recently too. You can't walk onto that campus and say, what's going on? And so talk about how cool it is just to interact with people in St. Louis and share that civic pride about having a company like this based here. Yeah, so civic pride, absolutely. I, I think, you know, for, for as much as we like to be uh, critics of ourselves, there's definitely a recognition that the entrepreneurial and the innovative spirit is alive and well here in St. Louis, especially when you talk about Cortex as a hub, especially when you talk about uh, Express Scripts as one of the largest healthcare providers in the United States. Um, I think from, from you know, my perspective, at the end of the day, um, we like to get out, we like to see what's going on, um, we like to come down here, showcase ourselves, and to the extent that people can't necessarily reach us on a day-to-day -day basis because of the way our campus is set up, this is an opportunity for us to come down here and showcase ourselves, and there's just a natural curiosity. I think Express Scripts has been around, around long enough that we have a name brand in town, and being able to talk to people about what we do and how we try to bring innovation to the healthcare is always welcome. Well, and let us not forget that at one point, Express Scripts was a startup itself. Yeah, and, uh, and so it's like being able to show the whole life cycle of what happens in an ecosystem. Absolutely, yeah. If you think back to our origins, which are in Earth City back in the early 90s as a small mail-order startup, um, it's, it's crazy to think what Express Scripts has become over the last 30 years. And when I look at some of the companies that are trying to do innovative things down here, my mind always trains to that. Who, who's the next Express Scripts? Who's going to disrupt healthcare? Who's going to bring a care model that's going to grow to a multi-billion dollar organization? Well, thank you, Bill. Bill Patterson from Express Scripts. And coming up, we're going to talk with one of those startups who was pitching. We're also going to get an update on launch code and find out about some aerial technology. Is your privacy at risk that may be coming to help fight crime in St. Louis? Stick around. We'll talk about all that on Nothing Impossible right after this. Welcome back to Nothing Impossible on St. Louis's News Radio, KMOX. My name is Arthur Holland Michelle. So I am the author of Eyes in the Sky, The Secret Rise of Gorgon Stare and How It Will Watch Us All. And I am also the co-director of the Center for the Study of the Drone at Bard College. So what did you, what kind of uh, access did you have in Baltimore and what did you observe? What stood out to you? What was, what was important that you took away from, from that? So in... 2016, the city of Baltimore ran a secret surveillance uh, program over the city with a military-grade airborne camera. Uh, it was completely clandestine, not even the mayor knew about it, and I was invited uh, on a strict condition of secrecy to come down and uh, witness the operation uh, live. So I spent two uh, truly eye-opening days in Baltimore, uh, watching the city, seeing how the analysts uh, were tracking uh, the, the people of Baltimore, particularly with an eye to solving uh, what they called unsolvable crimes, uh, murders and assaults with no leads, for example, hit and runs, things that would be very, very difficult to try and solve using ground-based uh, investigative techniques alone. And so what was the uh, effectiveness that you observed and were there any concerns that you took away? Sure. I sat in on a uh, briefing that the uh, aerial surveillance analysts 
had uh, put together for three detectives working on the, the murder of a man named Robert McIntosh. Uh, in this briefing, they showed how they had used the airborne camera to track numerous suspects who had been involved in this shooting uh, for several hours, um, both prior to the shooting and after the fact, um, thus providing the detectives with a ton of information, a ton of leads that they could follow up on. One of those detectives said it was by far the best briefing he had ever attended in his life. Uh, that just gives you a sense of uh, sort of the, the, the difference that the technology could make. He also mentioned that a lot of the leads that the analysts had dug up with their aerial surveillance technology uh, really in just the course of a, a few hours would have taken days, if not weeks, to track down using traditional detective um, techniques. That all being said, uh, this was a secret program. And uh, a few hours after that briefing, I stepped out onto the street. I knew that the airplane was flying that day. I tried looking for it in the sky, but I, I, I couldn't spot it. It's flying at very high altitude. But I knew I was being watched. And that was pretty uncomfortable. But what made me much more uncomfortable was seeing all the other people around me going about their daily business in Baltimore who were being watched and had no idea. That didn't feel right to me. And so I think that one of the areas that was particularly troubling of that operation is that nobody was told about it. And even uh, the company that ran that operation said that they disagreed with the decision to uh, keep it secret. This technology watches everybody, and so it's everybody's business to know that it's there, to know what it does, and to make sure that its use is not abused. So if the, and, and we talked with the folks from the, the organization, and they said they want these to be more public going forward, uh, and so if, if uh, the public is aware of this, if information is transparent, do you see it as an effective crime-fighting tool, or are there still privacy concerns that you just can't resolve? It is potentially an effective crime-fighting tool, but there have to be a set of very strict limitations placed upon it. And some of those limitations will indeed cut down on that effectiveness. I'll give you an example. One of the techniques that was used in Baltimore was to not only track suspects who had been involved in crimes, but actually to track people who had witnessed those crimes, to find their home addresses, to knock on their doors, and to try and extract testimony from them. Now, that is actually a, a legally dubious exercise. Uh, people have a right not to testify about a crime if, if they uh, wish not to. Um, and that was a case of the technology perhaps exceeding its, its legitimate uses somewhat, um, that would be the kind of thing that one would want to uh, clamp down on. Uh, you might want to clamp down on the use of the technology for live operations, so watching people in real time, and instead only use it for forensic after-the-fact operations, because there again, you know, you, you, you don't have necessarily that same uh, level of intrusion. You also don't want to hold on to the data for very long, because if you have these long historical tracts of our location data, then 
you know, you can really reveal information about people going back a long time. You can reveal really detailed facts about their lives and who they associate with, where they go. Um, but then again, obviously, if you have to delete the information after a couple of weeks, it's not going to be quite as useful in, in some of these uh, investigations. So that's going to be a really difficult balance to to strike. The most important thing, though, is that that balance needs to be the result of a public conversation. I hear that St. Louis is being considered as a potential uh, city for the use of this technology. Um, the company has said that they want there to be a public forum to discuss that. And I think that's crucial because ultimately the best rules are the rules that come out of a collaborative dialogue between law enforcement, uh, the policy community, civil society, and, and the public at large, that is so crucial. And that's what has to happen first, I believe. In terms of uh, who has access to the images and all of the metadata and everything from this, uh, from this plane flying overhead, is it the police officers or is it employees of this company? And then that seems like it would also pose... What information then if it's folks from the company who are manning this and operating this, uh, you know, in, ter in terms of sunshine requests, things that you can do to get information from police, can you do it with them, with this company? So the company believes that by having their own in-house analysts uh, tracking the data uh, exclusively, they create a little bit of a firewall between the police department and the, the, the data itself. Um, the idea being that if a law enforcement officer comes to them and says, hi, I would like you to track my wife, um, they can say, uh, no, we're not going to do that. Um, so th that is sort of the thinking there. Um, they have a pretty extensive privacy policy that covers what analysts can and cannot do, how these activities are logged so that there is a record of what people have been looking at and why they've been looking at it. One of the, the, the simplest workarounds to that very problem we mentioned, though, is to create a warrant requirement where if police want to track anybody who has been potentially involved in a crime, that they need to get a court order for it. There needs to be probable cause. And that creates a bar of sort of legitimacy for every surveillance activity that happens um, that is determined by an independent body, a, a, a judge. Um, at the moment, though, there is no uh, legal requirement uh, for a, uh, a warrant for the use of this technology. In fact, even a private citizen can use this technology however they wish uh, to, to track people from uh, above. And, and so that's an area where the, the law uh, seems to have lagged a little bit, or, or rather very much so, behind the, the technology itself. Hmm. All right. Well, Arthur, anything else about this that I've missed or any other aspects uh, that you want to add and talk about? Well, you know, the, this comes out of a, a book that I, I just published, um, and the book covers the, a truly remarkable story behind the technology, which is that uh, it was actually originally inspired by the movie Enemy of the State, a movie from 1998 with Will Smith, where the government uses a giant satellite 
to track him as he tries to escape from uh, from the NSA that's, that's, that's hunting him down. Um, and then it was actually used first uh, in a military context. It has been used extensively in Iraq and Afghanistan and more recently in Syria. Um, the reason I, I mention all that is because the techniques that were developed to use the technology in those wars to track down insurgent groups who were planting IEDs and mounting ambushes against U.S. forces are the same techniques that are now being carried over to the domestic setting. The things that the CIA and other agencies use the technology for are, are truly reminiscent of what I saw in Baltimore. And that raises some questions. One, is it right to bring a sort of military approach to domestic law enforcement? And two, we still don't know all that much about what happened in those operations in foreign wars. And I think it's important to get more information about those operations, to see how effective the technology was, to see what other sorts of concerns it raised before we jump um, fully into its domestic use, because I think there could be relevant information there that we still don't have access to. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Nothing Impossible on St. Louis's News Radio, KMOX. Welcome back, Michael and Travis, with you from Venture Cafe, St. Louis in Cortex. We're going to talk with one of the startups that just pitched as part of the Express Scripts X Factor competition. Right, it was Pitch the Pros, and we have Joe Beggs here. He has a startup called Hive. Uh, you think of that's where bees live at home. And uh, Joe, you're telling us a little bit about what Hive is. Tell our listeners, what is Hive? Absolutely. Um, hello, everybody. So Hive uh, is building a medical device to track when patients administer medication through a catheter in their arm at home. So these are people who have very serious infections, usually in the blood or the bone, and it can last for six to eight weeks. They have to administer for like an hour every single day. Um, and, and again, it's very tough. So there's minimal supervision from doctors because these patients are essentially just trusted to do it at home, this very complicated procedure. Most of the time when patients are non-compliant, and that means that they're not taking their medication properly, um, they end up sicker. And so the, the doctor doesn't even find out about it until they come back to the clinic with a worse infection than what they started with. Yeah. So we've created a tiny little uh, sensor that fits on the end of the catheter. We can essentially monitor when patients are taking their medication in real time. Mm -hmm. If they forget a dose, that, it, that uh, an alert is sent straight to the doctor. The doctor says, hey Jim, I noticed uh, you forgot a dose this morning. What's, what's up, can we help out? And then we can prevent the, re the costly readmissions before they even happen. So our device, we've gotten the cost down to $20. Um, with packaging and shipping, we, we expect it to be about $30. Um, we've had lots of success with local uh, startup competitions, and we've worked a lot with BioGenerator. So yeah, we're very excited for what's coming up. And you, uh, you were pitching to uh, executives from Express Scripts. How did that go tonight? It was awesome. I actually recognized some people there. Oh, cool. So I've been working with uh, I've been working with Express Scripts because you know they're St. Louis based, and we have some connections there. Yeah. Uh, actually, one of the representatives was at Sling Health Demo Day, which is Sling Health is I don't know if you've heard of it. 
Um, the WashU program, right? Exactly. Born out of WashU, yeah. It's a student-run biotech uh, startup incubator. And we met this guy there. And so I saw him, I was like, hey, what's up? It's nice to see you again. It was nice to have a friendly face there. Uh, also, Biogenerator was there. I, I, Harry Rader. And I'm also, uh, I've been working with Harry um, in the Biogenerator Fundamentals program. We've gotten lots of help from them. So just very supportive environment here. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so tell us, what is next for Hive? Is this product ready to go to market? Are you still doing, does it have to go through the clinical pathway like other medical devices do? Yeah, so we're a very low risk device because we're essentially just on the outside of the, of the catheter. We're not touching any medication, no, 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 nothing like that. So this summer, we're actually very excited. We're um, iterating our prototype very quickly um, to get it as small as possible, as cheap as possible. We're working with manufacturers in the St. Louis area to do that. This fall, we're rolling out a small-scale clinical trial. So we're talking 100 devices, maybe 200, and we're working with Mercy, uh, Mercy Hospitals and Mercy Virtual uh, to actually, and BJC as well, to do that clinical trial. When we have safety and efficacy data, we're going to pitch this to insurance companies. We're going to get our devices covered, and we're, every single OPAT patient is going to have this on them. So we're very excited. Um, moving forward. Did you say manufacturing in the St. Louis area too? Yes. Yeah, there's actually two. So I'm a student at Washington University and there are two uh, professors at WashU, Dennis and Ellen Mel, and they have their own manufacturing facility. And so we're, we're, we're actually working with them uh, to make our, make our device waterproof and, and essentially get it, um, get bulk prices. And yeah, so local, right? And we were just talking beforehand trying to figure out these patients are not inserting the needle themselves at home. Kind of describe what, what the process is like. They've already got the port there. And is this uh, measuring the liquid flow through? Does it detect what the liquid is? I mean, give, give a little bit about how it works for that patient at home. Sure. So the patient um, gets a catheter inserted into their arm right about the, the elbow on the inside. Um, there's, a, there's a dressing that goes over top, it's a clear plastic covering. The patient is not allowed to get it wet, ever, because you can get it, uh, bacteria in the line, and the line runs into the, in their arm straight to their heart. So it's very, very important that they maintain the sterility of the line. Um, what a typical day looks like for these patients is they, uh, they will get their medication, they'll find the correct dose, They'll, um, the, there's lots of different ways that they can um, actually administer it. Most patients have like a pump. It's a, it's a single-use pump. They'll inject their antibiotics into that. They have to flush their line with saline, and they also have to flush it with heparin. Um, they have to clean the, the end with, uh, on a sterile surface. Uh, and keep in mind, a lot of patients have varying degrees of health literacy. So that makes this whole thing even more complicated. Right? And so then they have to administer the medication for just the right amount of time, make sure that they get the full dose at the right time, so that whenever they get their labs taken later, which happens multiple times a week, they know how, what the levels are supposed to be, right? Because currently they don't. Um, with, with our device, they'll be able to tell, uh, you're, you should have this level of drug in your, in your system. So these, we've been interviewing patients on a weekly basis in the clinic, and we find that they're so again, there's there's um, people who are comfortable with it and some people who aren't. People who aren't, uh, they have a lot of trouble following directions, remembering when they're supposed to take their doses. So yeah, 
it's, it varies. And so, Joe, you are a student at Washington University. Uh, what are you studying and what year are you? So I'm a biomedical engineering student at Washington University. I'm a senior, ri rising senior. Okay, yeah. uh, this is my going into my last year, uh, the home stretch. That's why I'm gunning for this startup to, <laughs> to work out because I need to have a job after school. <laughs> Where did you come here from? I came from a tiny town in southeast Missouri uh, called Kelso. It's about 500 people. I'm related to the whole town. <laughs> came to Wash U and I was like, oh my God, St. Louis is huge. Um, but man, I, I have, there is no shortage of resources at that school and I have taken advantage of it um, every single day. Yeah. You, so you came from a small town, but it's, the way you describe the support you've gotten in St. Louis with the connections from executives at Express Scripts or Harry Arader at, at BioGenerator, it almost sounds like it's a small town sort of community that's around you helping support you in this. Yes, especially the engineering department at WashU. Yeah. Um, we're, we're a tight-knit community. Uh, the biomedical engineering, I'm, I'm doing an internship at WashU actually uh, with Eric Luthar and Dan Moran. Um, I'm also, I have another startup, so I actually have multiple startups. One of them is going to be successful, like, right? You do a lot, and shots on goal, man, shots on goal. Shots on goal, you just yeah. got to shoot, right? Yeah. You miss 100% of the shots that you don't take, right? right? Yeah. So, yeah, I've got other startups. I've gotten help from, again, it's kind of like double dipping because I make these connections with these people who are super friendly, and then I can, like, basically use it for multiple startups. It's, it's just great. Joe Beggs, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. And we'll be back with more from Venture Cafe right after this. Welcome back to Nothing Impossible on St. Louis's News Radio, KMOX. Welcome back, Michael and Travis, with you from Venture Cafe, St. Louis at Cortex. Yeah, it's, uh, it's my old stomping grounds. I'm never here as much as I would like to be. I just wrapped up a traveling 22 out of 28 days, but wow, what a great crowd here at Venture Cafe. You're usually at a Venture Cafe, not necessarily this one. It just might be, you know, halfway across the world. This is my 200th check-in at Venture Cafe, so, uh, but in this number contains all the other Venture Cafes as well. Ah, uh, gotcha. What's the number for Jeff Mazur? We see him here all the time at Venture Cafe, too. Me and you, we match, Michael. Sixth visit to Venture Cafe. But. Executive Director of Launch Code. Welcome in. How's it going? Things are going great. It's always good to be here. It's great energy always at Venture Cafe. It's great to be here tabling today with some of the other great folks from the tech uh, learning ecosystem. Uh, you know, we're next to our friends from NPower here who, who do a great job training people for tech careers. We're certainly uh, big fans of alternative tech training at Launch Code. It's a big piece of what we do. See the folks from Global Hack right across the way here who do tremendous things for younger people exposing them to code, giving them summer learning opportunities. So we're really grateful to be part of an environment, an ecosystem like the one here at Venture Cafe in St. Louis around alternative learning models for technical skilling. Yeah, let's talk about those alternative learning mo uh, models because you know, we are, we are moving away from, or at least maybe employers are moving away from requiring a bachelor's degree. They just want people who could do the damn job, right? Like, do you have the skills to do it? Talk, tell our listeners a little bit about the launch code model. It's coming up on six years now. But not everybody is aware of it. So tell us a little bit about the model. Sure. Launch Code is a nonprofit, and the basic premise behind Launch Code is there's this huge need for people who have can do work as software developers, applications developers. We know industry has moved in that direction, and that there's a huge workforce gap there. And um, the Launch Code model says that the traditional ways that we screen people for these roles is wrong. 
that we ask people to have a computer science degree, a four-year bachelor degree in order to do these jobs. And we know, we can prove that people don't need those degrees in order to do this job and do it well. So Launch Code has always been about identifying those people who may not have the traditional credentials and giving them the pathway into doing these jobs as junior software developers to move into a lucrative career, family-sustaining wages, even if they don't have the typical credentials of a four-year degree or experience in the field. So that's the model for Launch Code, and we seek to expand that model by uh, giving people a pathway who have skills, who, who have developed those skills in other places, or uh, because we recognize there aren't enough people out there today that have access to those high-quality skills already. So at Launch Code, we provide access to free, high-quality, job-focused training and coding so that people can develop those skills in an affordable, accessible way, and then access those careers. What's been the reception from, and has there been a different reception from the big Fortune 500s who might have these entrenched processes in place where they only consider what they consider, or has it been more difficult or easier with maybe a small creative firm who's also looking at what kind of credentials do I look for? Sure. I think that at, at, at first, when you have, as you know, large companies that have fairly entrenched uh, models for hiring, it's hard to break down the door the first time. But what we found, and what there's lots of data to show us, is that once employers recognize and understand how this model works, and they bring people in through this model, then they never want to go back. And so we see plenty of examples here in St. Louis with some of the region's largest employers. Uh, Centene, who I think has 59 launch code apprentices on their wow. books right now. Uh, MasterCard, who's taken dozens and dozens of people. Boeing, who's taken dozens and dozens of people. They recognize that um, by identifying people who have the skills, notwithstanding whatever their credentials are, uh, that they can bring these people in. Oftentimes, these people have a varied work experience that gives them uh, a good grounding in work, even if they don't have experience specifically in tech. So uh, uh, we see employers here in St. Louis that are responding to this model very positively and using it as really a way of, of building a, a big, wide pipeline into their junior tech jobs. For these big companies, you know, I just saw Facebook is announcing an office in New York, and Apple is announcing an office in Seattle, where the talent is already concentrated, so much so that it's hard to live for a lot of people. And so what does LaunchCode do to help make other areas of the country a possibility for these companies and to give folks in these other areas a chance at a career in these industries without having to move to one of these almost unlivable cities? Oh, absolutely. I think that um, there's a few things. One is that uh, as tech has changed, we've seen every company become a tech company in a way. So it used to be this notion that if you really wanted to work in tech or do a job like software development, you had to find your way into one of these big, huge tech behemoths. And what we're seeing now is that there are uh, opportunities for really fulfilling uh, high-quality high-growth careers in technology for companies that we don't think of as tech companies, for the Anheuser-Buschs of the world, uh, for name any number of other companies here in St. Louis that have a huge and growing need for tech jobs. And so what we found is that you can have, in a city like St. Louis that, as we all know, has a great cultural opportunity, has great uh, cost of living, very low compared to other places, uh, you can find a, a free, accessible pathway into these jobs where their employers have a huge need, and, and that's a really powerful combination. Free, accessible skilling, low cost of living, access to jobs uh, in fields where people have a high uh, and quick ladder for growth is a really powerful combination for uh, growing an ecosystem and giving people an opportunity that simply hasn't existed in previous decades. Well, And they're not only getting these skills, but they're also not coming out burdened with student loan debt, which is also amazing. So if it's a $70,000 a year starting job, it almost probably feels like a $90,000 a year job because you're not servicing that much student loan debt. Or 100000 when you consider the cost of living here. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and I think that, um, you know, and it's also, there's the other side of the coin, which is there are a huge number of people who went the degree route. They got a degree. They got a degree in English. They're out of school for three years. They've got 77K in student debt already. And, they, and they're in that 23-hour-a-week part-time low-wage job as a barista or at FedEx. And they're saying, what can I do now? I can't plunk down another $15,000 for some new skill. I, I am stuck unless I find something that's free and accessible. And those people can keep that job that's putting food on the table part-time and go to an accessible, free launch code program that allows them to build that skill so they can move into that $52,000 a year job that genuinely does give them an upward path and, and access to the middle class, which is key. They can actually pay those student loans back one day. What about reinvention? Do you see that a lot too? Somebody who's worked maybe in manufacturing, those jobs are not as plentiful. And when they are, like we just saw in Amazon and St. Peter's, it's one of the most robotically equipped warehouses that they have in the country. So even there, you've got to know about tech. So are you seeing a lot of reinvention too, mid or late careers? Absolutely. We see a lot of that. People come to Launch Code because they've had a career. The industry has changed. The floor has fallen out from underneath them. They need a ch They just want to change, even if the industry hasn't changed and they're ready to do something new. So we see people who are, you know, what we usually think of as mid-career age who are saying, I need and want something different. This is an opportunity to do that. And part of the value proposition with employers who are, th if you've already got them bought into the idea of thinking differently about how and who they hire, then it becomes a really uh, bonus proposition for an employer to say, here's a person who's new to this particular tech skill, but they have this rich and varied experience of job from some other industry, which makes them really valuable from that soft skill perspective that we hear so much about these days. And so um, it creates value for a new opportunity and a change of career for the for the learner, and it creates a, a, a great value proposition for the employer that gets to bring these people on. So LaunchCode has a computer science program, uh, CS101, correct? LC101. LC101, and then it also has Coder Girl. What? Talk a little bit about what the Coder Girl program's about. Sure. So uh, both LC101 and Coder Girl are programs that are job-focused, designed to give you skills that allow you to step into a junior software developer or similar type role. The Coder Girl program is a little different in that it's for women by women. So uh, depending on which skill track you opt into, and there are seven different skill tracks that include things like Java, uh, C Sharp, iOS, UI, UX, data science. Uh, women can choose which skill track they want to go into, and they have different lengths. Uh, but the idea there is that over the course of 26 to 43 weeks, depending on which track it is, you're going to meet once a week on Wednesday night and learn from women who are in the industry today. So you're learning the technical skill, but a big piece of this as well is uh, we hear a lot about the imposter syndrome, and we hear a lot about, and we know a lot about the challenges, uh, the additional challenges that women face as barriers to entry into the tech field. And so here you can learn not only the technical skills, but women who've been through this very same experience can share with these women who are just entering the industry uh, the experiences that they've had and help them understand from a mentorship level what are some of the challenges they're going to face culturally, what are some of the biases we know they're going to face, what are the strategies for dealing with those things, and perhaps most importantly, these women provide a, a, a visible tangible example of, I am just like you, we share the same experiences, I have done this, this is accessible to you too, you can see me, I've done it, I do it every day, and this is a pathway that's open to you, which is really powerful. That's been a hallmark, I think, of launch code, whether it's, you know, it can be a tough skill to learn coding, and so whether it's the pair programming you learn by doing, or whether it's coder girl, you get inspired, you get to see somebody who's done it, it seems like that's been a hallmark of the launch code approach. It's not go sit in the lecture, then go home and do your homework. This, the, it, what, a key premise of the launch code model is the community, uh, uh, the community model, community style model. We know that there are hugely scalable models of tech education. You can learn free online to code, right? There are ways to 
do it. And some people can be very successful with that. What it does not do is prepare people for all these other components of challenges in tech outside the technical skills. So you come to a launch code program, yes, you will spend some portion of your time by yourself on a computer working, but you're going to spend six hours a week in a classroom learning with fellow learners, working in small groups, working and learning in the same sorts of environments that you're going to be working in ultimately when you move into a developer role in technology, working with people who approximate a client uh, or a customer or a product owner. And, and that's a really powerful tool, obviously, for building the skill. But what it also is, it's a powerful uh, bulwark against this imposter syndrome. Because when people are sitting alone in a room learning online, when it gets hard, they believe, it's easy to believe, I am the idiot. I am not able to do this because I can't do it. I feel it right here. And, and as far as I know, everybody else gets this except for me. When you sit in a launch code program with others, you look around and you see 80% of the people are not getting this just like I am. And you say all of a sudden, ah, I'm not the outlier. I'm not the exception. I am the rule. I struggle like this like everybody else who's ultimately successful in this struggles. And that is a powerful component. When things get hard, to see that other people are struggling the way you are is a really, really key component of persistence. The secret of my success is I surround myself with other idiots. So like we're all idiots together. <laughs> we're three of us right here in this space. So, uh, so we're talking to Jeff Mazur, executive director of Launch Code. LC 101 applications are open now. How can people get plugged in? Applications are open now. If people want to um, uh, apply for the next St. Louis cohort of LC 101, which starts in August, applications are open until July 19th. You can go to launchcode.org slash LC 101 or launchcode.org slash learn, L-E-A-R-N, and find an application online there for the St. Louis class. It's our new curriculum, which is very exciting for the first time. We'll be deploying our updated curriculum, which is JavaScript-based. People will learn JavaScript and Java as a part of this program, and we're excited about rolling that out here in St. Louis in August. I will note, applications are still open as well for the July cohort of Coder Girl. Those applications close very soon, so if you're interested in Coder Girl, launchcode.org slash Coder Girl, you can apply there. Do you guys help if uh, you're trying to figure out, do I do iOS, do I do C-sharp, by the way, I played the violin, so that means something different to me, or do I learn Java, you know, which one do I go into? Uh, is that part of this, to figure out which track is the best one for you? Sure, we want to make sure people are informed on the front end, so we provide a lot in the way of information sessions for these programs, so people who know they want to do the Coder Girl program but aren't quite sure which path they want to go down can come to an information session, talk to a program manager, talk to an instructor, talk to people who've been involved in the program before, talk to the mentors from the various programs and understand for what sorts of careers that I am interested in would I be best suited uh, to go down which road and, and get some real good guidance and advice on that front. So uh, information about Coder Girl and about those tracks, again, available on the website at launchcode.org slash Coder Girl. All right, and Jeff, before we wrap up, uh, I think you shared a number before we started recording, about 180 uh, placements so far this year just in St. Louis. It, what, is that, what does that mean to the workforce? Like, is that, what does that look like from a, a payroll standpoint, people's lives changed? Sure. I mean, these are, I, I wish I could do the math that quickly yeah. in my head in terms of what, the, what this means in terms of total wage. But if you think about uh, just in terms of what it means to the St. Louis tech ecosystem and the, and the landscape of industry here, um, uh, LaunchCode has become the most prolific creator of new software talent in St. Louis. So if you took LaunchCode away and what we uh, contribute to this uh, um, industry and this ecosystem and this tech workforce, uh, it would be a devastating thing uh, for the industry. There'd be lots of even more jobs, hundreds of jobs each year that go unfilled. Um, but what we do know is that each one of those people, and you know, uh, over the course of the year in all the markets we work, around 225 placements thus far year to date in the first half of this year. And what that means is that people, by and large, who when they come to launch code earning 
if they have a job, about $21,000 a year. They're in low-wage and part-time jobs. People who complete a launch code program and who we successfully move into a full-time role, around $53,000 a year. Wow. So more than doubling, you know, uh, their wage there. So you can you can imagine the impact as you multiply that times 200 families. Yeah. What that means in terms of uh, raw impact on the community, not to mention the additional uh, profit and revenue that drives for the employers that now have a, a, a role that used to be sitting empty and, uh, and vacant that now has a productive person sitting in it. Personal impact on those families too, and those companies who maybe decided we don't need to hire this in Austin because now we can do it here in St. Louis. Yeah. Sure. If you create if you create tech talent, software talent here in St. Louis, it will be absorbed by companies that are hungry for it. I can I can guarantee that uh, they are hungry for it. And so Launch Code, we are about providing this opportunity to as many people as possible. We know it's hard. We know everybody won't make it through, but the people who persist, the people who succeed, we know are well situated to move into these roles and make really great careers for themselves and their families. Keep it up. Thank you, Jeff Mazur. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Travis. Executive Director of Launch Code. All right. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week on Nothing Impossible. Find the podcast. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to tunein.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.